we had to cover two and a half marathons a day for 16 days in a row to finish that event. So that kind of puts it in, in perspective. You're listening to Voices of Value, a selection of valuable insights designed to help you get more out of your professional and personal life through simple and easy to adopt life lessons. If you're keen to enjoy a better quality of life at work and at home, sit back and join the conversation with your hosts, Peter Kakos and Rick Rushton. And welcome to Voices of Value, and we're back again with Tony Rafferty. And last week, Tony shared some incredible, uh, incredible stories of the mindset of what it is to be an ultra marathon runner, and uh, spoke to us about goals and his assertiveness and the accountability and everything that goes with it in to be a peak performer in his field. And uh, and we're going to continue the conversation today. And joining me, of course, as always, my co-host and great mate, Rick Rushton. Well, Pete, I just still am getting my head around some of the stuff that was shared last week about sort of, you know, how quickly Tony could just reference how far it was from him taking his bottle from the uh, Indian Ocean across all the way to, you know, the Gold Coast and dipping that, you know, water from the Indian Ocean into the Pacific Ocean and, <laughs> and just, you know, the five thousand plus you know kilometers and the whole sort of thing i mean there's been weeks where i've actually had to fly that through business and i'm tired landing at the other end but to imagine to run it is just scary but tony thanks for coming back again and joining us and just giving us the gift of your time and it's not something you're doing a lot of in this day and age in fact uh, we feel very privileged that you're prepared to share so willingly with our audience we really genuinely appreciate that and when we left off last week you just finished talking about your story about running through death valley desert the hottest place on earth where you ran through there had a a, uh, wonderful opportunity from a very, let's just say, uh, overweight uh, journalist to sort of you know, give him the million dollar shot that would have put money in your account, but that's not how you roll. You've never done any of this for money. You've always done it through the ability to see how far you can take yourself. That trip, you sort of got to meet another, because you're an elite runner at this stage, and then you also get to meet one of the greatest athletes that's ever walked the face of the earth in the great Muhammad Ali. Talk us through that story. Yes, well, this was quite a time after the Death Valley run and I was invited back for a, a speaking uh, engagement there and uh, Muhammad, I was interviewed on this radio program of which Muhammad Ali had been on earlier and it was in the green room afterwards when the two people looking after Ali at the time give us uh, my support crew and myself in particular this ticket to go and listen to him at, from memory it was the uh, University of uh, Los Angeles Yep. So I went along uh, to see this particular uh, um, talk that Ali was given and he, on the stage, he would, almost as if he was in a boxing ring, he would dance and prance up and down the stage as he was talking and the man was just absolutely full of enthusiasm and we were all inspired and are inspired by enthusiastic people mm. and I'll always go back to, to that particular time. Now, at the finish, a few people were invited backstage. So we all had a time just to say hello and to shake hands. Now, there was some uh, sherries there and a few eats and maybe an occasional beer. And I noticed that Ali was only drinking water. Being Muslim, he doesn't drink alcohol and so on. But he was he just wouldn't stop talking. The man was just, it was great to be in his company. And um, that is something that many weeks later, 
uh, I was standing outside Flinders Street Station and everybody's face around me uh, was very glum. It was a terrible day in Melbourne. The rain was pouring down. And right away it went back to that moment when I was in the presence of this great man, Muhammad Ali. Mm. His enthusiasm for everything was just unbelievable. And uh, I've always, it's always rubbed off on me a bit. Like I felt like saying to the people around me, for God's sake, put a smile on your face, you know? And I got this, I'm not saying that I don't suffer gloomy periods. Of course, we all do. It's natural to. But we all come out of it. And I think we should just be smiling as much as we can. And I know we got to laugh a minute from Ali that day, you know. Mm. You know, his um, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, his hands can't hit, but his eyes can't see. <laughs> you know, I'm so fast when I flick the switch, I'm in bed before the light's out. <laughs> you know, the, these things are, never leave you, you know. And he, this is what he did on stage. He just went through all his old stuff. His old, his little quick uh, uh, poems. and uh, But we still laugh because he was enthusiastic. Well, we've been fortunate to interview Graham Alford, who brought out Nelson Mandela and Rubens Hurricane Carter to Australia. And at the same time that he was taking them around the country for all these speaking gigs, Tony, Richard Pratt from Vizzy had brought out Ali. And uh, they all met at the... Um, uh, the Grand Hyatt in Collins Street in Melbourne and they all wanted to meet each other. It was really quite funny and Graham Offer was just saying in that room and all that charisma and all that sort of stuff, it's just interesting. And the other story I loved it when you shared it about uh, Ali, about you know what he was telling to George Ford. This is how he, of course, psych himself up to get ready for these fights. You yes, know, he'd yes, have to yes. prepare himself mentally. No different to how you had to visualise taking on Death Valley. And as Pete said last week, did the word death in the name Valley <laughs> mean something to you? But I always remember Waitley asking... Ali to if he could be more humble he said look I, I simulated with Neil Armstrong he was the first guy to walk on the moon you don't hear him out there saying I'm the greatest of all time I'm the, I'm the best that's ever lived and Ali apparently turned to Waitley and said well is the moon trying to kill Neil Armstrong because every time I go in the ring the person opposite me is trying to kill me <laughs> so he said I had to build myself up to believe I was the best so that I could trick my brain to take on the physical punishment that he was always talking about a bit like you preparing at the golden bowl in the sauna bath going you know suffer under here out of the bright lights of competition so when you are under the bright lights you can perform and so you did that you know clearly to get through Death Valley the other thing you did in the States which I think was amazing you were looking to set an endurance sort of uh, time uh, in America and uh, there was a situation there where you're so strong-willed, you're so mentally tough that it actually probably cost you. Do you want to go through that story? Uh, Yes, it was on a track uh, in New York which was close to Harlem and it kind of bordered on on Harlem and it was um, 1,300 mile race. Uh, That's 2,092 kilometres. Uh, so off we went and uh, things were going well and I was in second place after about nine days when a little stone got in my running shoe and it worked its way up uh, between uh, two of my toes. And I ran on and put up with the pain for a while and then it did go away. And uh, the morning later, after just two, three hours sleep, because we all suffer sleep deprivation on these races because we're trying to get in front of one another. <laughs> After his two hours 
uh, got in the road and I found I, I can't continue. My, my uh, foot was really bad from this and went to the doctor and the doctor said, look, this looks like it could become infected. So I've, he, he refused to let me back on, mm. on the track. Now, I was in running from memory then in second place, and I knew it was only a matter of time with an 18-day cutoff point in this race that I could, uh, I, I'd be there. I'd probably make it in 16 days, whatever, maybe even, even less uh, for this 2,092-kilometer uh, 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 run. Anyway... I went back many places in the event until I had a long sleep and the doctor looked and he could see I was getting very fidgety and he did all the right things. I was giving a pain-killing injection and I got back out uh, on the track. And the only thing that kept me going uh, uh, to the finish in that race was that I knew in this particular event, which was only one every two or three years, it happened over in New York, I knew that only five people, five, six people had ever completed the event. And sometimes there'd be 30, 35 people uh, in, in the actual race. But there was a very, very high attrition rate. And I worked it out that I'm way behind. I worked it out that if I was to keep one foot in front of the other, not leave the track except for obvious toilet breaks, mm-hmm. uh, that I could finish this event and maybe, just maybe, get a place in the event. So I did. They poured iced water over me, you know, through the night. They come up with all the so- sorts of tricks. I had, uh, uh, in those days, were called the Walkman, and I was playing my favorite jazz music, uh, turning it up loud, and um, all the famous jazz greats, Benny Goodman and et <laughs> on it to keep me going. Uh, I'd get off and I'd change my, my running shoes as best I could back on the track, and they pushed me and pushed me and my support crew until in the finish uh, there were uh, three people going and I finished in fourth place. Uh, so I was able to make it uh, to, to the finish. Now, there was an 18-day cutoff point. And what, in fact, we were doing in those, if you can just to put it into perspective, in order to finish that race, a runner had to, around 16 days was the what people of these um, top-ranked ultramarathon runners could do around uh, 16 days. We had to cover two and a half marathons a day for 16 days wow. in a row to finish that event. So that kind of puts it in, in perspective. But that nearly knocked me out. But that was another thing that they talk these pain barriers and things, and indeed I've used that term pain barrier, and I don't know, you know, you get over the pain barrier. I mean, do you really get over the pain barrier or, or are you just motivated so much just to finish? And I think that's more like it these days. Mm. I used to use that as a kind of a term. I don't know if it was a correct term now, all these years later. But in general, it was very, it, uh, was very good. But that was in a time when, you know, to walk through Central Park in, in New York, 1986, around there, it was the most dangerous city in the world. It was a bit seedy, wasn't it? So you get there early, you decide to acclimatise, you think you might want to go for a run through Central Park, and you ask a New York police officer, Roughly, how long should that take? What was the what was the answer yes. there? I went up and uh, <clears throat> I had a meeting in reference to the big race. Uh, so I'm walking uh, through um, uh, and I'm coming up to the gates at 
uh, Central Park and there's a policeman there. And I said, oh, excuse me, sir, how long do you think it would take me to walk through Central Park? I've got a meeting on the other side of the place. And he paused for a moment and he looked at me and says, I don't know, nobody's ever made it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he walked away. And I'm saying, oh, and uh, keeping in mind, it was the most dangerous place in the world Absolutely. at that time. So we came back just a four minutes later with a big, uh, broad um, smile on his <laughs> face. And he told me his name. He, he was very much a New Yorker, but he was one of these <laughs> Irish New Yorkers too. You know, you get that little sort of Irish, Southern Irish accent, you know, from him. But we went out right through and we stopped. We uh, ha, uh, after we had the meeting, etc., where you, all the runners stayed at the Omni Park Central Hotel in uh, New York, yep. which was an interesting place in itself. And one of our runners was Ziggy Barr, one of the greats, uh, got all his stuff uh, stolen. Mm -hmm. And just a little side story very quickly in reference to that. Coming back as we were leaving back for Melbourne on, on the air, uh, um, Ziggy came running up uh, and I, I'm keeping a spot in the queue and he says, Tony, Tony, guess what? And he showed me his wallet. Now this uh, person who had pinched his money, he was from Harlem and uh, he took all the prize money, uh, oh. Ricky's prize money from his room, which was just opposite my room, so I was lucky, took all his prize money, but returned his, um, his wallet and then shot through uh, at the, and all the... Um, uh, is you know visas all that stuff credit card uh, everything credit was there but see they just needed the money yeah so, so they were thief of the conscious they just wanted yeah. the hard cash and uh, yeah. give it from there so that's interesting so you, you but the lesson I think you got out of that was sometimes your strength which is your mental toughness is sometimes your weakness too because had you have just stopped taking the pebble or stone out of your shoe mm -hmm. you would have been able to effectively run that race no problems at all Tony, you've um, you, you've shared some amazing stories, and I'm, I'm not certainly going to lose this opportunity to to get more life lessons from you. And I'm sure people are just sort of, you know, just intrigued by uh, the mindset of an ultra marathon runner, and just 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 in terms of your um, your awareness of, about life and your experiences and so forth in life. What what other sort of um, life lessons? You know, do you think the listeners would um, get a lot from? Because um, you're a brilliant man. You're, you're looking as fit as ever. You're as sharp as ever. Um, what, are, what are some of the, the, the things that you think have helped you along your life's journey? Well, my Order of Australia, which was a great surprise to me, uh, was for uh, services to community fitness, uh, plus the other things, just not the one thing. And it took two or three years for all this to come through, and I was so surprised. And all of that is backed up just in those few words, services to community fitness, that I suggest to people that uh, and in these days of uh, heart attacks still being number one, they were number one years and years ago, and that hasn't changed right through. Mm. And to this very day, um, there's somebody uh, dying uh, from heart disease uh, every 10 minutes, every 10 to 12 minutes. So things haven't changed. And the experts tell us that we have to get off our chairs and walk more at the very least. Take up running if you have to, although you don't have to do that. To swim more, to cycle more, it is important. So the the the, the life lesson, and it's been mine, uh, whether that that just come from the subconscious, 
or not, well, one can't be really sure, but that has been my life. I have looked after my nutrition within reason. Uh, as I said before, you know, I like a glass of wine now and again. And in the past, I, I'm a former smoker. In the past, I, I remember going into restaurants and signing autographs uh, with a haze all over the place. You know, right. I remember those vividly. And uh, people said, oh, you smoked? And I says, but you go back to the late 60s and 70s, everybody smoked. Mm -hmm. Like 70% of the population smoked, for, for goodness sake. Well, of course, uh, it was Percy Surity who w was adamant at the time. One day he grabbed me and he says, you got to give those things up. You'll be dead 15 to 20 years, he said to me, down at Portsea uh, one day when we were around the place because he knew that I was a smoker, not heavy, but, you know, Camel, Chesterfield, Philip Morris, Lucky Strike. Yeah, <laughs> I smoked all those things in those days. But as I say, people in the fitness industry, people who played, I knew many soccer players were heavy smokers. They wouldn't last a second today. Uh, you see, so... They'd be having I, one at half time, wouldn't they? <laughs> And, uh, oh, in those days, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, uh, so to get back to uh, to your point, um, it's been my life, uh, fi physical fitness. Uh, the smoking's gone. I, I was never really a heavy drinker, but at times I drank too much. Well, that there's moderated now to the point where, well, they say maybe an old glass of wine isn't bad for you. Well, I like a glass of wine, but that's it. And um, um, and uh, I like a, a coffee, and I like more a vegetarian type uh, dish than a meat dish. Uh, I do eat fish, and now and again, just maybe white meat like uh, like chicken. You see, so I don't think that's a bad diet. It's not perfect, but I don't think it's bad. But the the main uh, principle that I can tell you right now is we must get our backsides off the seat. And I noticed that there are even some radio networks, one here in Melbourne in particular, where they do many interviews as they're standing. Mm. They're standing, doing interviews these days. He or she's standing uh, for two or three hours doing interviews rather because maybe they're sitting too much at their computers. And the kids at school, it frightens me today what's going on in schools mm. with their mobile phones and uh, the, the, the computers. Now, okay, I'm 80 years of age. Maybe that's aging me a lot. Uh, maybe that's my that old, uh, I don't know. But I'm really frightened by this. That modern technology, well, okay, it's got us good points. But gee, how many bad points has it got to? Mm, yeah. And you're into movement. Uh, I know when I've uh, had you speak at anything I was doing, it was always thrilling to me to hear that Tony had walked from his home, Pete, to catch public transport. To then, you know, every time I'd say to him, here's where the event is, and I go, it's probably about a 40 minute drive for you. He goes, oh, that's right. It should only be about an hour and 20 with a walk here and a bit of, like, he was always trying to work out how to get some physical exercise to get to the but actual tour. It's a key lesson, isn't it? That's yeah. why it's great to, to sort of take that in. And I understand, you know, being at 80 and certainly having that 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 worldly uh knowledge and so forth but it's it's something that uh, we can't forget and we should never forget no. you know and and we we go with ease far more you know without without a without a thought to consequence no well i think what happens at school in this day and age is all these fears about what might happen if little johnny or little jill falls over playing sport and so therefore you know there could be a lawsuit and all that sort of stuff i mean i, I that was my favorite time at school was as soon as you could get to a break to play sport or pe you know to do something mm -hmm. active i it's no doubt that we don't move as much as we used to tony and your sort of oam as you said wasn't just for your contribution to ultra marathon running which has been off the charts there's no question about that it was actually your 
absolute focus on community fitness right across from old to young to, you know, yeah. it doesn't really matter. It was that kind of situation. Speaking of old to young, I want to fast forward now to the Westfield Ultra Marathon, which you helped pioneer in the Sydney to Melbourne. You ran it five times, I think, from memory. Uh, yeah, well, I'd run it before as a solo. Yep. Um, uh, Sydney to Melbourne, which was uh, a feat in itself. Um, with lots of traffic and, you know, nobody had ever done this before. And then it was a, a great finish at the, uh, um, at the square in Melbourne. Yep. Um, and um, where they used to have the big Christmas tree there and lots of, lots of people there and in with the mayor and, and so on. And then that got things going in reference to the Sydney to Melbourne. Yep. And then George Purden's manager at the time, John Tolman, and a lot of people got together and a lot of my people got together and uh, the Westfield race started. Yep. So that was the run into the great Westfield race. And I finished five. I was in seven of the nine races and I f- finished at, from my memory, two-fifths, a sixth and a tenth. I think that's the way it uh, uh, it went, and the, the route changed a little bit uh, now and again. But the first one from 1983 to 1991, so there were nine races. Yep. And uh, that uh, first uh, 1983 race will go down in history because this little man from uh, Colac, from um, Beach Forest in Colac, uh, who nobody knew at that stage, and everybody by that stage uh, had known of George Purden and Tony Rafferty. Not many had known Joe Record or Siegfried Barr or Raymond Zabalo or, or, or these famous um, uh, runners from overseas, John Hughes from New Zealand. But uh, Ziggy and I, or sorry, um, George Purden and I yeah. were the ones who were up. So we arrived at uh, Westfield for the start of this uh, big event. And um, uh, Mike Willisey, interviewed all of us and interviewed me and Willis he says well Tony you know it looks like it's between you and George that man over there what do you think you know with his funny gear with the holes in the pants etc <laughs> well you see Cliff had uh, cancer problems from the sun that's why he was wearing those but what people didn't realize which I told uh, Mike Willis at the time was that the Cliff had played Rover for Colac football team, I think until he was about 46, 47 years of age. Yep. He used to run from Beach Forest to Colac to collect his mail, <laughs> just as a matter of fact, and run back again. How far is that, Tony? He, Roughly how far would it uh, have been? I'm not quite sure, but he was covering his good 20Ks. I mean, you know, 15, 20Ks, whatever it would be. And... Um, he would he would muster his cows was the yeah well it was, it was his yeah that's right he would do that but he his um, uh, brother was a potato farmer yep so Cliff was out here but Channel O at the time which has changed to Channel Ten Channel O at the time with all the publicity about all of this said Cliff come here but everything was on Cliff yep. at the time you see yep. and that's why at that I spoke to Mike Willis and said that's the man you got to look out for you see because that man has got miles in the legs. Uh, as well as Rafferty and Purden, and not to mention these other great no, ultra marathons. Absolutely. And he was in his 60s, wasn't he? I think, which was um, probably. He was 61. Where, yeah, so that's I was, where the. I think 46, which was about the best age for ultra marathons. So he was. Um, he was 60, uh, yes, yep. uh, 61. Yep. And then Cliff, um, uh, the Channel O got to them and they said, hey, Cliff, here, put these boots on. 
and run <laughs> run through the paddocks, all mud. <laughs> Cliff never ran from Beach Forest to Colac in Gumboots. In no. <laughs> he ran in his, I think, down his Irish shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you know but there was this whole thing went around the world, this man. He was, Cliff was getting all the accolades. Not a bad thing in the long term no. because it got the run publicity. Absolutely. Once Purden and Rafferty were out of the way, <laughs> I mean, who would have been interested? But he won purely and simply because he actually ran when everyone else yeah, was sleeping. The night. He just, well, he was. We were running through, I got to Mittagong. And keep in mind, no mobile phones in yep. those days. So you didn't know we who? Had to do, we didn't know. What. So when you went to sleep, you didn't know who was passing. And you had to rely on people on the highway coming up in trucks and semi-trailer drivers. Anyway, I'm running through Mittagong from um, Westfield at Parramatta, running through Mittagong to Melbourne, because it was Sydney to Melbourne, yep. running through, to Mittag- um, through Mittagong. And people, what, what the hell's wrong, Rafferty? Where, you know, and I realized then I'm in about fifth or sixth place. And we hadn't passed Cliff, and nobody, Cliff hadn't passed us. And this semi trailer driver stopped and got out. He says, What's wrong with you guys? You're way behind. Cliff's miles up the road, <laughs> miles, he said. It wasn't miles in those days. Miles up the road, what, you know, what's wrong? So this is strange. Now, before the race, we agreed that. We would all, between 12 midnight and 4, gentlemen's agreement, uh-huh. we'd all have a sleep. Uh-huh. Hello. So we're all, you see, so. <laughs> Convention being broken by one, <laughs> well, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Now, the thing was, the story that went out after that on all the TV networks and the radios, etc., was that his support crew made a mistake with his alarm, alarm clock. clock. Yep. And hey, Cliff, get yourself out there and push, push, push. And they pushed him on. He was two hours ahead of all of us. Yeah. And then he shuffled it. He had actually given up, you know, halfway at Albury until Joe Record came along because Cliff was in the lead. And Joe came along and knocked the door and said, Cliff, get up, get up quick. Well, what are you doing here? Have you got some ice? And he didn't have some ice. So Cliff got up, shook himself off and shuffled through. Kept on going. And wandering. Shuffle through. Just shuffle through. Did I? So I detected a bit of a gentleman's agreement being not honoured by just one party, and he blamed it on his support crew with their alarm. Apparently, conspiracy. There is a bit. Did he actually share his prize money as it was uh, uh, suggested at the time? It was a ten thousand dollars winner's check. There was this massive. (laughs) I can sense this is something that after (laughs) eighty years, this man wants to get this off his chest. There was this massive amount of prize money for running from. Sydney to Melbourne in a race. Uh, 10,000 prize money right. was put up for <laughs> for this uh, 14 runners, was it? 15 runners. Uh, of all these top ultramarathon runners in the world at that stage, right? And um, Cliff came in with this, uh, winning this $10,000. Now, Joe Record, who stayed with Cliff for three months beforehand, because Joe was a nomad, Great character. You write a book on Joe alone. Unfortunately, Joe died, in, you know, some years ago. Anyway, from cancer. Anyway, uh, Cliff um, paid Joe half of his money, and he shared the rest of his money between all the rest of the runners. I think we all got. I think we'd averaged out at one hundred and seventy-four dollars or something. <laughs> Like that, <laughs> not that we, so uh, I agreed with one or two of the other runners to give it to some, my uh, favourite charity, charity at that yep. time was, I think, Urala, I think it was from memory. Yep. Anyway, whatever. And um, 
So that was the end of that. But that started off then uh, the big race yes. where other big names would be made. And would Giannis Kouros be the best you saw in that particular uh, Look, discipline? Giannis Kouros uh, is the greatest ultramarathon runner in history. Yep. Uh, he holds, I think even up to this day, 70 world ultra records from 24-hour, 48-hour, uh, six-day, thousand, all of this. What made him so know? good, Tony? What made him, was he well, DNA gifts? But the, you, know, you and I hate the word freak because he trained probably harder we than do. most. Yeah, we do. And uh, remarkable things even what I've learned, and I started ultra long before Giannis did. Yep. Um, what we have learned since. Janos Kouros, I think if you take biopsies and examine the way they can do these things, I think you'll find that his slow twitch fiber and his fast twitch fibers are very close, like 48%, 52%, right. one or the other. Whereas in mine, for instance, my slow twitch fibers would be quite high against my fast twitch fibers would be only good for 50 meters speed. Right, so short turn of foot. Short term, good for yep. soccer, not good for Got the it. ultra. As uh, lectures in soccer has come up and I've often contributed to in reference yep. to soccer players not doing long distances, they don't need it. So he had the right DNA so gifts. Seemed to be the right DNA gifts. But besides that, he has incredible mental powers mm. and he's into visualization he's into uh music he writes poetry he's a man of nature he's all of these wonderful things and he gets that uh, really out there i haven't seen Janus for some years now no but it, you were tough competitors but you were very good friends as well yeah oh, oh very good friends uh, uh yeah, right, right along. And then he went on to win the Colac race. He went on to win five Sydney to Melbourne races, and that's when Westfield set off, forget en it. Enough now. It's almost yeah. like man walking on the moon. We know you can do that yeah. now. It doesn't hold yeah. the same appeal. And for the cynics out there, drugs, 100%, take that arm, take out, take my two legs. Giannis, no. No, he just was that good. Yeah, the best. And so – what else do you think? I mean, clearly he had the DNA gifts. He had the right mindset. He was absolutely good. No assistance from what you know, we talk about drugs in the day and age. He was good, just very good Greek good boy. Good Greek boy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter. What else? Just, well, look, I was just bring, going to bring up a comparison with Giannis with, um, say, the likes of, uh, shall we say, Ian Thorpe, uh, the swimmer. Mm. And uh, Peter McKenna, yep. the uh, footballer. great foot footballer. Collingwood and champion. And say Lionel Messi, say the great soccer champion, right? Yep. So like you, you take um, uh, Ian Thorpe. People say, oh, yeah, he's a natural. You know, he had big hands, you see. And Peter McKenna, uh, big hands and big feet, you know. With mm. Ian Thorpe. And Peter McKenna, great hands and good vision, et cetera. And then you got Lionel Messi. What people don't uh, look into is that you take Messi, Messi, from four years of age until he was 10 to 12 to 14 years of age, dribbled a soccer ball on, col on um, uh, stones, where they cobble yep. cobblestones, yep. where he lived. He's very poor. Yep. He dribbled a day after day after day 
on cobblestones with a with a, a worn out soccer ball, and there's old footage of this of Lionel yep. Messi. So there's that ten thousand hour principle stuff yep. went to Messi. Ian Thorpe in the pool every day. Of course, he's got big hands and big feet, etc. But what about the hours of practice yep. when he was even unknown? And then Peter McKenna uh, with with his hands, all the work that he's put in as a kid. People forget this now. You can go back in time mm. uh, to people like say Mozart. You, you look at more Mozart was just a genius. Of course, he was a genius, but uh, there is research now to show that at three years of age, Mozart fiddled on a piano. Yep, he was doing the work. Doing the work. Now, there wasn't any distractions the way we have today. No. He went through the work. So to get back to, to the point that Janos Kuros put the work in also. Absolutely. Uh, where the physical work uh, on his uh, thing and if I can just mention one more thing about uh, about Janos Kouros I would go out and do 20k's training for Sydney to Melbourne and then 10k's in the afternoon uh, and then I'd go into the city and run an hour up and down I was flying to flying to um, TV show in um, uh, uh, Brisbane with Janos and Janos says Tony you know I've never run more than for the ultra than an hour and 15 minutes ever in my training but what he does do he tries to sprint Sprint, for one hour 15 minutes and then that's his workout done so a rapid fire and he do it on but and that was the modern as janice commended thinking yeah our thinking was nobody knew no so get the miles in the legs and there was no there was no research yep like yeah. we were, you know, I had, I had universities ring me about these things. Yep. So, you know, I was learning the hard way. Mm. You see, so, yeah, Janus, uh, uh, that's how, he, so I changed my program. And, based and, on and him. Just based on, on him doing that. And then coming back, he said one thing, which is interesting. Uh, a person asked us on the flight for autographs and she went over and she says to him, how do you run? from city to Melbourne, Yanis, and do all these records. And he said, I run on soft pillows. So he thinks yeah. of these short, soft pillows as he's running. Great visualisation. That's, that's I remember learning to learning to run and, and distances and so forth because I was a very fast twitch so, um, person as a uh, fibre person as a young fella. But I remember Stu Middleman, remember it? Um, yep. Tony Robbins. Yep. Stu, I, I remember, Stu. yeah, Stu, he had that book called Slow Burn. And uh, he used to say, run like you've got dinosaur arms, yeah, and also run like the ground underneath you is yeah. moving and all you're doing is lifting your legs up. Yeah. And I remember from that it actually taught me how to run. All of a sudden I was running yeah. half marathons and so forth like yeah. that. Tony, when I asked the question about, um, say, uh, the difference between a marathon runner and an ultra marathon runner, because I think a marathon runner, you look at them now and the speed they go at, particularly um, – the Africans are incredible just to, just to watch them. How do you do that? Um, then there's others like the, the De Castellas and so forth from from back when, uh, the Monigetis, very, very, very good marathon runners per se. What, what is the significant difference besides the obvious? But what, what do you think the difference is between those marathon runners and then those that can run the ultra marathons to get yeah. up 
and do it again the next day. And then you get mm-hmm. up and do it again the next day. Well, the, the, the first thing is that we can put one foot in front of the other and we've got this mindset of, you know, do so many like my across Australia thing, 74, that's what I'm getting to. That's the first thing. But before one of the Westfield races, Robert DiCostello was there as one of the guests and he got up in front of a whole crowd of people. I think it was at Parramatta in Sydney at the time. And he says, I don't know how this whole group of people can can run. Like, how can they run for four or five hours? Uh, n- never mind run through. I just don't know how you guys can do this. It's just not in my thinking. And it's not in my body. I, I could, and he, he said, I could not do this. You see, so right away he has that in his mind. Yeah. He's one of the world's great marathon runners. Uh, as Steve Monaghetti, great marathon runners, and Steve's been to the Colac six-day race, and he has said similar things. I don't know how you people do that. But we, we, we've had people come out of our support crews to try and understand our thinking. It's happened to me. We've invited people as our support crews and people who are into physical education and uh, who have watched what we do and how we think. And it seems to be that we're just, we just think about it in a different way. We think about it, oh, well, I keep going slow. I'll get some energy into my body. I keep going. I'll have X amount of sleep. The non-stop things are a wee bit different than that. You punish your body a bit more, perhaps. But um, it just becomes this, it, it comes back to to strive to seek to find, as uh, Tennyson said in his famous poem, Ulysses. You've just got to strive. You've got to seek. You've got to find, but not to yield. Yeah. Mm. And this is what I live on. Yeah. I live on on this particular attitude, and he happens to be, you know, uh, the, the the great poet. And he said it all. Shakespeare said it all. Shakespeare said uh, nothing. What is it for? Nothing comes from nothing. Mm. You see, you get it into your mind, right? Well, if nothing comes from nothing, something must come from something. So. Oh, you see, so that's a mental attitude. Yeah. Like positive attitudes create, negative attitudes destroy. You know, placing uh, success is placing fifth when last time you were sixth. Yeah. That's success. And then it, it, and you like fail, I don't really like that word, but it's okay to fail. Mm. It's okay to fail so long as you've done your best. Yeah. So you see that marathon runners just don't have it in their head to understand why they even want to do it. So therefore, it's not that they couldn't do it. Physically, they probably could. But because they've shut themselves off to say, I don't know how you guys can exactly. do this. Well, exactly. by default, what you've just said is there's no way I could do it because yeah. I don't understand how you could do it. And you yeah. don't know why you'd want to do it. So as we wind up this incredible, insightful chat, Tony, and um, just some, some wonderful, wonderful stories, some great insights, and it? it's just incredible. <laughs> just that Stu Middleman, and we spoke about the ground moving and just lifting your legs and the dinosaur arms and so forth. He also had the run like you've got butterflies between your um, oh, yes, yes, pointer yes. finger and your, and your thumb. Is there any little tips for those 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 runners out there, those those that are doing the distances and so forth? Because you know, again, I just don't, I, I just want to tap into this great <clears throat> mind of yours, and because it's just it's just incredible to think. You know, we're talking about five thousand nine hundred kilometers of running. Mm. Just rounded up to six thousand, oh, mate. I reckon it's just it's just, <laughs> yeah, just mind <laughs> blowing, absolutely mind blowing to it think is of because I, I just think of what goes in your mind, what goes on in your mind in a five k run, yeah. or a ten k run. Yeah. Okay. So now multiply that by another five thousand eight hundred ninety five kilometers, and that's a very good point. So yeah, ha- it, and it's not like you 
going there thinking, oh, I've got this easily. There's going to be times of doubt. There's going to be times of challenge. Okay. Well, look, this may simplify it, but I I'm really sure you mean love this. That. <laughs> People write to me. They're entering the, the half marathon, the marathon. Number one, if you're going to do the marathon, don't do it in 12 months. Or oh, the marathon's in 12 months. I'm going to make it 18 months and train for it. That's number one. Because you've got to get at least 80 miles, a we- uh, 80 kilometers a week in, in training. And it's got to be in all sorts of surfaces. That's uh, uh, number one. So don't rush into doing a marathon. A marathon is a soul-destroying event. Now, the simplified part of this whole thing is when you do want to do something that you've never done before that's long, a half marathon or a marathon, the number one thing you do the night before is cut your toenails. (laughs) Because the people who drop out of these marathon runs because their toes are hurting and bleeding is because they haven't cut... Uh, their, their their toenails Pretty and funny. even so even cut the toe from from the front of your shoes sorry at all these uh, shoemakers <laughs> but you have a look at most of us in the altar who have cut our toe uh, things out the second one thing is never miss a drink stop there every five k's don't say oh i'm okay i'm hydrated as you go further along uh, the route don't stop, but go out, get the drink, get it in and off. Because usually these things are in hot weather and you need to be hydrated to finish because when you begin to dehydrate in a, any sort of endurance feat, you don't rehydrate by drinking more. You're already dehydrated. Yeah, yeah, You're that. gone before you start. So, Is there anything else that you think you could share with our listeners because you've been uh, so giving with all your information and just, you know, I could talk to you for the rest of the day and I, and I have had these chats with you where we, we get lost in time and immersed yeah. in time, but is there anything else that you'd feel like would be important that, you know, for your grandchildren that will hear this in a time probably beyond your sort of mortality, was there anything you want to share with your with your family and uh, friends and people who know you as to yeah, some well, sort of value? Yeah, thanks uh, for that, Rick. I'll, I will be brief. Um, well, Kieran now, Kieran's 25, and, you know, there's an awful lot of this which he doesn't know about. I mean, he's breezed through and he's, oh, yeah, Dad, and so on, <laughs> I've heard of, And so on. So, you know, a lot have come through there which he may probably not have known. So uh, it, it is of good. I'd just like to mention that um, I met Sir Donald Bradman. He gave me a seat once when I was a guest speaker at a function in Adelaide, and yeah. I couldn't believe it when the man came up afterwards because Bradman was a very private person uh, to say that, have you ever met Sir Donald Bradman? And I said, no, wouldn't it be great? And he said, well, come here. He's on table number 10 over here. And I had a chat to Sir, Sir Donald Bradman. This might have been, what, the 80s perhaps? So I spoke to Sir Donald Bradman for a good 40 minutes, and I'll never I'll never get over that. That was just a wonderful thing. I got him to sign a little thing for me. <laughs> I was cheeky. And uh, then there was uh, Sir Edmund Hillary, whom I met at Bonash University here, yep. who said to me, just remember that you must believe in yourself at all times. It's the motivating force that enables you to... Um, uh, to achieve your goal. And one last thing, because I've had soccer so much of my life, was meeting George Best at <laughs> Doncaster um, ground, closed out when he came in a charity match to play football when he was towards the end of his days and a bit podgy <laughs> and suffering his alcohol, but was doing a lot for kidney disease, unfortunately. That's what finished him off. But And seeing him on the ground, pouring wet rain, uh, the secretary of the Soccer Federation at the time inviting me in 
behind us says, Tony, you're from Belfast. And he said, yeah, he says, come on, meet George. So George sitting there, he signed a big poster for me. And we sat and we chatted and it was, it was full of mud. And the referee was calling the players back out on this charity event. And here I are talking about Belfast, <laughs> uh, 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 the great George Best. So I'll just leave it at that. And look, thank you, Rick. And thank you, Peter, for for your interest in me. Oh, wow. Tony, it's been fabulous. And you're a great Liverpool man as well. Oh, yes. Which, uh, which, <laughs> which is well, important. Well, I think we should have another Georgie. part three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Georgie Best, though, the absolute icon of Manchester United and what a superstar he was and things of that nature. And it's really interesting when you hear Tony talking about these other people, you know, Bradman and talking about mm. Messi and all that sort of stuff. You know, I often say this to audiences, Pete, when I introduce Tony, I say, if Tony was in America or if he was in, you know, Europe or, or those sorts of places, he would be revered as he rightly should be for someone who's been the first to do so many things, some amazing things. And yet, you know, he could walk down the main street of Berwick, even with his accent, and still fit in fairly comfortably because <laughs> he doesn't go seeking the limelight. It's taken a lot to coax him into, because he doesn't like talking about himself too much. But I said to him, one of the things that I think is important is, is that there should be some gift he leaves behind for. Kieran and obviously you know the next generations to follow because you know Tony did all this stuff way before the digital age way before it's recorded yeah. a lot of this stuff wasn't sort of you know sort of known and you really have to dig deep to go find it but you know to have him here in in uh, our, our studio as we record this is something that's a real gift even something that um you, know, you talk about music and the motivation and so forth like that. I mean, you talk about Walkmans and back in those days, and it was hard enough to to run with this big pack <laughs> called a Walkman. Now people just sort of take it for granted. You just whack a couple of pods in your ears and and listen to whatever you want on Spotify or, or whatever it may be. It's um it's incredible. So you did have to that that self motivation mm-hmm. was um w- what I loved hearing about Tony because now I think we can we can get it. We're very fairly resourceful in terms of um, the ease in in which the, in which that comes, but you have to to really go within, and that's that's, um, that's the key message to go within, to really tap into, uh, I guess that that inner um, uh, that inner assertiveness that we that we've spoken of, and uh, you're an incredible man, and uh, it's been an absolute pl- privilege to to sit here and listen to some some wonderful wisdom uh, from an incredible athlete. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. And uh, just for those of you who have been listening to this, if you do get the chance to give us some feedback, I'll make sure that Tony gets it. He is a private person, but uh, certainly any feedback will be greatly welcomed. If you want to really make sure that members of your network get this story, make sure that you share it. Uh, Do rate it. Do sort of uh, get in touch with us because Pete and I do actually respond to everyone who gets in touch with us, whether that be through the digital way or the normal post, traditional post. But you've just heard from Tony Rafferty, OAM, an absolute eye in the ultra distance marathon uh, world and more importantly an absolute trailblazer in the fitness world he started fun runs he was an integral part of the westfield ultra distance marathon between sydney and melbourne he has run the continent of australia most of us get tired just flying it he has (laughs) run the hottest place on earth he continues to shine in his 81st year on the planet and we couldn't be more prouder to bring someone of this ilk to our microphones. Tony, on behalf of all of us here at Voices of Value, we say thank you for the gift of your time and uh, we're going we're gonna to get you back. So whether you like it or not, <laughs> we'll coach you into okay. it. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Tony. Thank you. We trust you enjoyed listening to Voices of Value, a shared conversation between Rick Rushton and Peter Kakos. Their views are not necessarily those of the wider world, but they should be.
If you're keen to enhance the quality of your life even further in the future, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your preferred podcast source. Our website is voicesofvaluepodcast.com and we welcome both your feedback and ratings on the content we provide. Join the conversation again next week when Peter and Rick continue the search for truth, justice, and the value-added way. We'll be right back.